Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 20. We're in verse 7. We'll be starting there. And as we like to do, we open with a word of prayer. Lori, would you open us, please? Yes. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you open up our hearts so that we can hear your word and receive your word and feast on it. We ask that you just bless us to walk in the knowledge and the truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Lori. Welcome, Mark. Welcome. Well, it's great to be with everyone. We've been looking at the book of Acts as the restoration of Israel, or as William said in our last uh, recording session, the rebirth of Israel. And I won't review a lot, but you can listen to any of our previous uh, podcasts and and get a, a recap going back to the beginning. We're seeing a systematic fulfillment of virtually every prophecy made to national Israel. And we are nearing the end of Paul's journeys. He is now determined to get to Jerusalem uh, by Pentecost. And he has just, uh, well, after spending three years in Ephesus, he's made about a year and a half tour through Macedonia and Greece. And probably, I couldn't think of it last week, but he probably went up into what we call Albania at this time. He mentions that in his Roman letter, having gone up into that area as well. And so now he... He was going to sail down to Syria, but uh, he learned of a plot to kill him, not by the Roman government, but by the Judean opposition. And he had to change his course and go around through Macedonia by land. And he's now crossed over into what we would call Turkey, and he's waiting in Troas. Uh, he waits a whole week there until the appointed gathering time of the brethren. And this now we'll pick up here and read verses 7 through 12, please. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep, He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. 
and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Great. Thank you, William. It occurs to me, uh, William made these comments in our last session about the new birth, which everyone has regarded as an individual experience. And in, in my religious experience growing up in Churches of Christ in America, salvation is all individual. But we're going to see here, we, we see throughout the book of Acts, that this is not really God's ultimate purpose. He had something greater in mind, which we are all part of by the grace of God, that we may rejoice in. But I think part of the disease that has weakened the religious institutions of our country is is teaching this individualism. And then there's a close cousin to it, the institutionalism, which has uh, gripped and had control of the Protestant churches for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. What we see in this paragraph is is a family coming together to celebrate their oneness in God's kingdom, in his called-out assembly, in the reborn Israel, uh, I would suggest. And the clergymen would like to see Paul at some lectern and these people dutifully sitting in these hard pews for 12 hours staring at the back of someone's head. But I just cannot conceive that this is what uh, went on here. They were gathered as a family reunion kind of thing. And, you know, Paul is there visiting with them and no one wants to go home. This is a regular working day in the Roman Empire. So most of them had probably had a full day's work. And then they gathered in the evening. And Luke is using the normal Greek-Roman reckoning of a day ending at midnight, not at sunset, as the Judeans would have done because he's calling about the next day being morning and midnight, you know, being the night before. And so they're all there together and they, you know, they're just trying to just get this information out of Paul. You can just uh, (laughs) kind of visualize that people that are hungry for the word and the truth of God in this kingdom. And then we have this, this sad incident where this young man who may have done hard physical labor in the sun all day or something, he falls into a deep sleep and falls right out the uh, open window. Glass would have been a rarity, if not uh, unknown at that time. And he fell down three floors and was picked up dead. And Paul goes down and throws himself on him. And we find uh, this bringing to mind examples from both Elijah and then his successor Elisha from First and Second Kings, where they threw themselves down. Uh, on someone who had died and brought them back to life. And these allusions to Old Testament events are not coincidental or accidental. I, I don't believe we are, we're seeing um, that, they, that there's a oneness about it all. The, the whole Bible is God's story of how he is going to recreate Israel into the perfect bride for his son and the perfect dwelling place for himself on the earth in the physical realm. And the whole Bible is that story told through different sets of symbols, but marriage uh, being one of the most important. But anyway, these symbols repeat and uh, resurrection uh, repeats. These physical resurrections, of course, point towards the spiritual resurrection that all of those who are in the body of Christ, who are joined to Christ in marriage, 
experience this resurrection life that we enjoy now. It's not something we have to wait for like so many people are sadly doing. And they, they ate together, you know, that night and there's food set out. I believe that what we call communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper was not observed as some ritual in hard pews administered by some clergyman, but in the middle of or at the end of a meal, a common meal that they would eat together, they would stop and they would celebrate the 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 wine and the unleavened bread as these emblems of of Christ and uh, their recognition that they were now the body of Christ, that he had given up his physical flesh and now they were his uh, his body. And then, you know, there's still food out, so he's going to eat again, you know, after talking a while. You know, it, it's to me, I get the the picture of a family reunion more than a an eight-hour church service. Okay, but I'm I'm somewhat of a heretic on these matters. And he kept talking. They left, but we'll see that he stayed behind. The rest of the party with Luke went on and got a ship that left at dawn. And uh, he waited a little bit uh, afterwards, perhaps to make sure that this young man was doing well after his near-death experience, or true-death experience, uh, however you wish to view it, they were all greatly comforted. All right, so your thoughts or comments? Well, you I'd like to say okay. this, that you mentioned the corporate nature of the body of Christ, of the community of Christ, and I think that is a, uh, a huge uh, point to make, that the focus of the body of Christ in the New Testament has a more corporate focus than we uh, have been traditionally want to give it. You know, as you said, most people think about things as individual, but the point is is that individuals are merely members of a body. They're not the body. Uh, it, uh, we become part of Christ's corporate body, and a lot of the language in the New Testament can't truly be understood and appreciated with an individual perspective. That's more of a Western mindset in the way we think, as opposed to the way uh, they thought in you know biblical lands and in terms of how they viewed themselves. Another point that I'd make, even on the new birth, as you mentioned it, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, he says, Marvel not that I said unto you, Nicodemus, singular, that you, plural, meaning Israel, must be born again. So there was a corporate concept even there in the text where he was speaking not just to Nicodemus as an individual, but he was speaking to Nicodemus about the nation of Israel being reborn. Yeah, that point in of itself was worth all of us getting together tonight. That's uh, that's such a key point there that, again, has been overlooked by every virtually every religious teacher I had known until maybe 10 years ago. So thank you for bringing that out. Okay, let's read verses 13 through 16, please. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assus, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when we met him at Assus, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Great, thank you. So Paul had to 
travel some 20 miles while the ship sailed around a peninsula. I've never had the privilege to travel to Turkey or Greece, but the coastlines are very rugged and jagged with all these little islands and little peninsulas and so on. So he, he cut across the neck of the peninsula while they had to sail around it and apparently had no trouble getting there in time to, to meet up with the ship. Luke gives this great detail of the voyage. Uh, obviously, he was there. Quite a contrast to combining a whole year and a half of Paul's journeys without Luke together in just a few verses, just a few paragraphs uh, before. But now we're getting all this blow-by-blow of each place that the, that the ship uh, stopped into here uh, on the northwestern part of modern-day Turkey. And again, he's in a hurry to get down to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. Uh, Some scholars believe that this is the year 57, and Pentecost would have fallen that year on May 29th. And so he's in a hurry to get down there. All right, any other thoughts or comments? Well, Mark, uh, in a couple of occasions you've mentioned God's plan for the restoration of Israel. And in the interest of uh, new listeners who may not have heard previous uh, 19 chapters, you might uh, explain what Israel you are talking about because uh, many people would immediately think that what you're referring to is uh, the restoration of the present-day political state of Israel in occupied Palestine. Would you care to clarify that? Oh, sure. (laughs) What we have been seeing again, and I encourage anyone to go back and listen to some of our previous podcasts on the book of Acts, what we're seeing is the necessity for Israel in her last days to be spiritually transformed, to experience that new birth that William mentioned a few minutes ago. Israel in her old form could not make it. The law was there to prove they could not make it. They could not live up to God's standards They could not become a perfect bride of God. They were, in fact, an adulterous bride. Uh, Judah was allowed to to exist, even though she is just, I mean, it's it's graphic. It stated that she was uh, more of a, a harlot than her elder sister Samaria, or the northern kingdom of Israel. So physical Israel had become a harlot bride. And the book of Hosea depicts this also quite graphically, the book of Ezekiel and so on. And so it was God's purpose, and I believe his his eternal purpose from before the foundation of the earth, even his reason for creating the universe, was to recreate Israel into a perfect spiritual bride. And in fact, this is how we see the Bible closing at the end of Revelation, is with this perfect bride. Uh, coming for the the feast. Everything is consummated there at the end of Revelation. And uh, so in no way am I saying that any of this is fulfilled with the uh, government of the modern state of Israel. I believe it has no connection at all with any of these promises. And their attempts to identify with the old harlot bride of God really don't help their cause to any serious Bible student who's willing to look past the years and years of obfuscation on the end times teaching uh, of the Bible. Uh, does that uh, say what you needed to, Chuck? I think uh, if you expressed it, does William agree? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's 
how I would look at it. I think that... Um, so the Israel, uh, Israel then is the those who follow Christ? Is that uh, who Israel is? That's correct. Uh, let, me, let me make this comment. What we have in the Bible is the story of the Exodus, and most people are familiar with that, that uh, Moses was a servant of God who led Israel out of bondage in Egypt and led them to you know, what the Bible calls the promised land. During the time that they came out of Egypt, they came not only with Israel, but a mixed multitude who were also in Egypt came out with them. So it's important to understand that Israel was made up not just of people who were the seed of Abraham, but also even many of the Egyptians and whomever else they might have enslaved at the time came out as a mixed multitude with them to form that nation. Now what we have, according to Isaiah chapter 11, is God saying that he would a second time deliver Israel from Egypt. However, this time it's going to be from the perspective of a spiritual deliverance. And that comes through Jesus Christ, who in Hebrews chapter 3 is raised up as the second Moses. As a matter of fact, if you study the Gospel of John, you will basically see the second Exodus reenacted through all of the chapters of John, starting in chapter 1, where he's the Lamb of God, the temple in chapter 2, the Shekinah glory in chapter 1. I mean, you know, you could go through that whole, the bread of life in chapter 6, the manna from heaven. So in other words, he's reliving the Exodus theme through his ministry. Uh, he's the living water, etc. So, so all of that's there. But what I was going to say was, when Jesus died, he died to the old covenant system, and that's where his Exodus begins. When At the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says that Moses and Elijah spoke of his decease. Well, that's his exodus. So now we have Jesus dying as the new Passover, if you please, and as the new Moses to lead the people to true freedom. And that true freedom, just as it was in the old, involved a new covenant, a new mountain, a new people. Uh, and when I say a new people, he's, the gospel was first to the Jew. And so... Um, it starts with the people from the nation who accepted Jesus Christ, and then the Gentiles, just as it was the mixed multitude. And that's expressed in First Peter, in the book of James with the 12 tribes. It's even expressed in the book of Acts in chapter 26, as well as in the book of Revelation. And so that's the new Israel, the new deliverance that is taking place as the second exodus in the Bible. And that's why um, it, you know, it occurred in the first century not anything to do with what happened in 1948. This is all uh, something that took place in the time of the Bible. Thank you so much, William. All right, yeah, well, that was uh, far more eloquent than I could possibly state it. I did want to speak about, you mentioned institutionalism. Yes. And when you, when you said that, the one thing I thought about is I believe that that is how our faith in Christ has been infiltrated by Judaism or Zionism, because our religion has been institutionalized in our nation. And when I hear Christians say that they're Judeo-Christians or our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, I think about what the scripture says, and that's, that really does not exist. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul says that 
if we go back to the laws of Moses, Christ is of no effect. So how can we be Judeo-Christians or Judaistic Christians? I Really, that's not even possible. You're either one or the other. And I think that because we have picked up that concept and we've allowed our religion or our faith to be institutionalized by the government, be it through a 501c3 or whatever means, that is what I believe has allowed the commingling of two different faiths. Um, when you listen to Orthodox Jews, you do not hear them speak of being Orthodox Jewish Christians or anything like that. You only hear that from Christians. Yeah, no, I don't. Chuck's probably done a lot more research on the origin of that term, but it's a, it's definitely a propaganda ploy, and it's probably relatively recent in origin, the, the widespread use of Judeo-Christianity. I, I think it's something unique since World War II would be my guess. Do you have any insight on that, Chuck? It definitely is modern, yes. Yeah. So, again, you know, you have this Holocaust uh, religion where of all the genocides that have ever happened in history, even the ones that, I mean, like what Communist China did just four or five years later, where they butchered 80 to 120 million of their own people and all the Christian leaders of China, by the way, that they could find, you know, that's nothing compared to the six million Jews that Hitler butchered. And so there's this huge propaganda effort to make sure that Christians and Jews are united and that nothing like that can ever happen again. And so I, I think it's a post-war phenomena, and Christian Zionism you know, has certainly been part, I think, of the same exact propaganda effort. Right. But if you... If I listen to the Orthodox Jews, and they speak of the reason for the Holocaust in, in totally different terms. Um, they speak of it as God's punishment for something they've done. And not that I agree with it, but I think we need to really have more balance brought to the message of the Holocaust. And it was a horrific thing. I, I don't argue that. But I think the whole truth needs to come out as to why and what were all the dynamics that happened surrounding that. Um, because it, based on information that I've been reading lately, the Zionist Jews and I guess the Zionist Christians, I don't know if, if Zionist Christians existed then. I'm assuming they did. But that is when they were able to infiltrate government and begin the process to really push Zionism. Well, and it, yes, and it had started a little bit before, during World War One, the Balfour Declaration, where they did get to high places in the government of Great Britain, and, and certainly the Schofield Bible being published around 1908. You had all the gears in motion before Hitler in World War Two, but that was certainly used and, and huge migrations uh, occurred as a direct result of, of, of those events. So it is it's worthy of great study. It's, it's not really our focus tonight, but it's a dangerous area to go into <laughs> because there is such an academic monopoly on Holocaust studies 
by elements who do not agree with us. You only go there if you're not afraid of being called bad names. However, a man named Finkelstein lost his job as a professor for referring to it as the Holocaust industry. And so it is a very sensitive area. And sensitive because Zionists absolutely will not forgive anyone who ever mentions it and even wants to discuss it in a historical context. Uh, And that's what happened to Norman Finkelstein. So thanks for bringing it up, Lori. Okay. Yeah, I'm not not afraid to speak up on it. (laughs) You're fearless. (laughs) I mean, if we we go after the truth, we're going (laughs) to... Okay, back to our study here. Let's get back on track. Let me just read. Uh, let me just read one verse here, verse 17. Paul travels; he's in a hurry. But at Miletus, he sailed past Ephesus. They put in at Miletus, a small port south of Ephesus, and summons the elders of the church. It's about 30 miles. Someone could uh, walk, or they could go partly by water and then partly by land. Maybe Paul sent a Christian of Miletus up there as a messenger. We don't know. But the elders uh, of the church, the leaders of the church, come down there the 30 miles. They Just like the group up at uh, Troas, they're not going to give up a chance to, uh, to see Paul. And this is really the only address of Paul to Christians that Luke records. And so it's quite interesting and unique in that aspect. There are noted similarities to his letters, particularly the letters that would have been written later uh, about this time. And that, of course, makes perfect sense uh, that there would be certain similarities in the two. Although we can also see Luke and his writing style coming out in this as well. So if we can, let's read verses 18 through 21, please. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia... In what manner I have always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Judeans, and how I kept back nothing that I was hopeful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Judeans and also to Greeks repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, excellent. Thank you. So he stayed there about three years, working from his base in Ephesus, the chief city of Asia. And we saw that by the time he left, that the entire province had been turned upside down and that many of the highest ruling officials either believed in Jesus Christ or had a very positive impression of Paul and of the disciples. Uh, We saw that in the events surrounding the big riot in the theater in Ephesus. So Paul has this impossible mission. There's 12 apostles, but then Paul is added, the 12 are going to go to the 12 tribes of Israel, and then Paul is going to go to everybody else in the whole world. (laughs) So (laughs) that's it's almost humorous to think about it what Paul had to do in his lifetime, and he wasn't a baby when he was given that job. He was a grown man, and and he had to accomplish this, you know, in less than a lifetime. In, in one generation, he had to accomplish this of taking the message to the whole world, which I believe is the whole known world, 
or basically the Roman world, anywhere that a Judean synagogue had been established, uh, I believe was the, the limit of, of what they were talking about when they said they had to get that out to the whole world. And we've seen this all through the book of Acts, that he, he goes to the synagogue community in every major city, and he finds those who will respond to the promises of the prophets. He uses the Old Testament to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And those who receive that message become part of this you know, reborn Israel, and then they form the nucleus by which the whole province then gets to hear the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he's rehearsing all of this with them, and he's been doing this amidst the trials that government persecution befell me. Verse 19, no, that's not what it says. It says, through the plots of the Judeans. These were his enemy. The Roman government, again, was his friend at this time. And the Judeans who would not believe were the vicious, vicious enemy of Paul and all of his work. And he taught in the school of Tyrannus, probably in the hot part of the day when it was cheap to rent. He taught publicly in the school and then also from house to house. They were like a big extended family. And again, the Judeans and the Greeks alike, in every synagogue community, including there in Ephesus, there had been larger and larger numbers of Greek-speaking non-Judeans who had been assembling together every Sabbath with the synagogue to hear about the God of Israel. And these were the God-fearing Greeks, and we've seen over and over that they accepted Paul's message Whereas a minority of the Judeans would accept the message, we see a vast majority, if not an overwhelming number, of these God-fearing Greeks accepting the gospel message and the fulfillment of these prophecies that they've been hearing every week in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Jews and Greeks like, and then they, of course, had a greater sphere of influence uh, around, and, and, and that's the way that he took the message out to the whole world. Asia was a perfect example of how he'd been working. All right, any thoughts on that? Very good explanation. Well, thanks. We have three more verses here that kind of go together, verses 22 through 24. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every day saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All right, thank you. So he tells them he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. This is not something that he personally has decided to do, but the Spirit of God has directly moved him to go to Jerusalem. And he knows uh, the same Spirit of God speaking through uh, prophets in city after another uh, tells Paul that imprisonment and tribulation await, await him at some point that's getting closer, apparently, in his future. But he's not too concerned about self-preservation, <laughs> We've seen that. No, I I don't mean to laugh, but this guy has gone 
to places where they absolutely loathe and hate him. He tried to go into that theater in Ephesus. His friends had to probably forcibly constrain him to keep him from going into the theater. He gets stoned. He gets beaten. Uh, I mean, he's been through a lot. But you see, I told you about this incredible job that he was assigned. It's, it's unlike any other assigned to any one human being in all of human history that he's got to do, you know, in 20, 30 years. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 24. I'm not worried about my life. I'm worried about my mission, my course, this race that I have been set on. He has to race through the whole known world before he dies. So, I mean, this is not, this is not a 50-yard dash. This is, a, this is like a marathon, but you don't get to take a week off or anything. I mean, you've you got to just keep running. And he's just, that's all he's worried about is getting through this job. So it's it's so beautifully consistent and so beautifully ludicrous on human terms. I mean, you know, how could any human mind have conceived of the job assignment given to the Apostle Paul? Or how could any sane writer like Luke write this down with a straight face? I mean, because it's like impossible, but yet he's doing it. It's actually happening. Uh, it's unbelievable. Anyway, that's, I, I get too excited. Great ending. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. That was an excellent study, and we had some really interesting comments, and we'll look forward to continuing on next week. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.